This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Sockett, and joining me today is Mike Carew, a senior scientist at Sandia National Laboratories and scientist-in-residence at St. John's University. Mike is actually involved in several large-scale scientific software projects and community initiatives, which I hope he will tell us a little bit about today. So, Mike, welcome to RSC Stories. Yeah, thank you very much, Vanessa. Thanks for the invitation. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. I can get started. I think my biggest kind of day job right now is I am the director of uh, software technology for the U.S. Department of Energy's uh, Exascale Computing Project. And so I have about 250 people in, in my organization under the software technology focus area from almost all, probably all of the U.S. Department of Energy National Laboratories and a bunch of different universities. So we're very much a distributed organization, uh, lots of different career levels in terms of you know, senior folks all the way down to postdocs and graduate students. And so it's a very diverse group of people. We get together, you know, in person, uh, you know, we try to once a year, although this year, of course, it hasn't worked out so well. But generally speaking, all of our work is done remotely and virtually via, you know, video conferencing technologies, you know, asynchronous tools like the Confluence and Jira tools. And so you know, we do a lot of our work in a distributed environment. So that's a little bit of background on what I do as the as the director of software technology, my explicit job is to work with my team. And you know, Lois McInnes, Lois Kerfman McInnes is the deputy director of software technology. She and I lead a group of uh, seven other people who are domain experts in their particular areas, say programming models and runtimes, uh, development tools, math libraries, and so on. And then as a leadership team, we help steer the activities, shepherd the activities of individual smaller teams of people that are doing the actual software development for the Exascale platforms, you know, developing things like math libraries, specific math library, for example. And so our job is to, you know, help them get their job done as they conduct their work. Wow, so 250 people. And as you kind of just said, I, I would imagine that sort of trickles down where you talk to sort of the leaders of smaller groups. Can you talk about what it's like just to have to think about that space and how to go about being a leader? Yeah, that's a good question. I've said repeatedly to you know the, the people we meet every couple of weeks, you know, for about half an hour, you know, everybody, I invite everybody, all 250 folks to come. Not everybody comes, of course, but we record it so that people can get access to it. And I've often said in those meetings that, you know, I'm 100% overhead on this project. I'm not, you know, developing an algorithm. I'm not writing a line of code. So help me do my job by helping me make you more effective and efficient. That's always the mindset I have as I try to work with my teams is to make their lives better, make them more effective and efficient. I have some questions about your current projects and teams that you lead, but before we get to that, I do want to step back in time and have you tell us the story of where you started. You can go back as far as you think is appropriate, maybe when you got your first computer or some kind of schooling, sure. um, but can you tell sure. the story from that point up until where you are now? 
I'll start with my scientific software development skills. I, I started hacking uh, Apple IIe computers in a chemistry lab, making them do gravimetric titration experiments, which is fine, but I'll, I'll start in my graduate years when I was at Colorado State and worked on the Cyber 205. It was one of the supercomputers of the time. It was an NSF phase one supercomputing site at Colorado State. And so I grew up doing supercomputing as an applied mathematician graduate student on this platform. And I really became enamored of what you could do with these large scale computers to do high fidelity mathematics, numerical linear algebra, basically. And, and from there, I went, I joined Cray Research, the other supercomputing company that was in charge of the system I worked on as a grad student. And again, worked in the mathematical software research area um, developing uh, libraries, uh, math libraries for Cray customers and, and just loved it. I always did enough publishing of, of research papers, you know, new algorithms and you know, being involved in the R&D community that I was still doing research even though I was doing software development. Uh, and I loved the, you know, the ability to complement those two activities with each other and build upon well, one from the other. And so I have always enjoyed that. One thing that is really interesting about your history that I was going to bring up is that you do seem to have this really nice balance between software research and then the actual practice of software engineering. Is this sort of something that you sort of just stumbled into or did you sort of develop awareness for it over the years and then strive to have that balance? I probably stumbled on it as I do with a lot of things in life. I just like to follow my intuition as I do things and because it often leads me in a direction that my cognitive part hasn't caught up to quite yet. And, and usually I find that enjoyable. And then I learn why I was interested in it uh, later on. And so I probably got started that way. But then it became quite explicit, you know, this notion that to both write software and then become better at the craft and become better at understanding what's the role of software and how we develop and use it to do scientific research. That's always been a fascination for me. Yeah, so let's talk about some of those questions. And I wanna start with kind of a general question. What does it mean to build a community? Why is that important? And how the heck do you do it? Yeah, that's an excellent question. From my point of view, I love to be a part of a community and foster community development because I think the aggregate is much more than the sum of its parts. I think we can leverage each other's backgrounds and strengths and the products that we make to come up with a whole that is you know, much more capable and expansive than if we were to work on individual pieces without talking to each other and learning from each other. I regularly learn from my colleagues who are doing similar kinds of work, you know, best practices, you know, a, a way of thinking about how to solve software problems, mathematical problems using software. And so creating a community ecosystem and not, not just the software itself, but the tools and the, the processes, the opportunities to meet with each other and exchange ideas has always been something that's been enjoyable to me. I mentioned my time at Cray, you know, as part of a math software research group and then working with engineering applications as a part of that time also. But then when I arrived at Sandia very early on in my time there, I saw that there were a number of different mathematical software 
efforts going on that were essentially distinct from each other. We needed to be able to come together to work together. And so that was the impetus for creating the Trilinos project, which is you know, one of the probably my first big kind of community oriented software project. I have heard of Trulinos in context of the SPAC package manager. We always talk about it as an example package. Do you want to tell us a little more about it? When would I want to use Trulinos? Uh, so Trulinos is a collection of scientific libraries. At the core of it is a collection of preconditioned sparse linear solvers. But then it's created in a kind of hierarchical fashion you know, that you can also use it to solve nonlinear problems, which in turn then often need linear solvers. You can use it to solve transient problems, you know, time-dependent problems, which can also be nonlinear and then can also have linear solvers as a part of it. And then you can do uncertainty quantification. You can do stochastic types of problems. And so it's it's designed as a kind of toolkit for solving multi-physics and other kinds of engineering problems. It's also used in for circuit modeling and also for integral equations. So it's got a broad set of data structures and you know components that allow you to address a, a pretty broad variety of problems. And then it's always focused on you know current high-performance computing architectures and then looking forward to the next set of computing architectures. Something that you said, so you said, okay, it's, it's focused on HPC, high-performance computing architectures. One thing that I think about a lot, and I think probably a lot of listeners do too, is this kind of interface between like HPC and then something we might call cloud native. Mm -hmm. How do you see we're doing in terms of being able to kind of switch between those two spaces or, for example, develop software that fits nicely into both of them? I became enamored of containers six or seven years ago, in part because Trulinos is big and gnarly and it's hard to build, frankly speaking, right? It's it's just a big piece of software. It's got you know, dozens of independent products that are combined together and built together every single day. Every time there's a pull request, the entire stack needs to build sanely. And so it's, it's challenging to make it build. But on the other hand, we tell people, well, imagine if you had to you know, install all of those dozens of packages yourself, how hard life would be. So maybe it's not the best answer when they're pulling their hair out and trying to build it. But but I became enamored of these containers because they allowed us to do a build in a container and then pass that build, that container around so that you could build your application having this pre-built binary version of Trilinos. And so that to me was very exciting years ago. And I see this continued you know, growing intersection and overlap and complementarity between, you know, what we're doing for, you know, bespoke systems like the Exascale platforms, but also being able to do that in a containerized way and deliver it in a, a much more turnkey set, you know, environment for the people who want to focus on getting their science done and not necessarily having to become expert at building software that underpins their own software. I totally agree. And I'm also on team. I love containers and I like to put all of my unruly software in containers to kind of tame it a little bit. Yes. So you said the word exascale. Yep. What does that mean? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Yes. And in my current role as a director of software for the exascale computing project, what we're doing is we're preparing for some computers that are being built 
by the U.S. Department of Energy. And exa is 10 to the 18. So it's a billion billion. So, you know, you snap your fingers slowly for about a second. And these machines, at least in some situations, are able to then have computed a billion billion operations in that short span of time. We typically do that by, of course, running at very high clock frequencies, you know, order uh, gigahertz, a little bit more than that, close to 10 maybe. Uh, but then you also have to have 100 million to a billion way concurrency so that you can you know, achieve that 10 to the 18 rate of execution. So is this project sort of the ultimate example of distributed leadership and organization and community? Like who's, who's involved in this project? Yeah, it is a big project. You know, it involves all the laboratories, a bunch of universities. We rely upon these distributed communication platforms. Before Zoom was cool, we were using a Zoom-like product called BlueJeans. We now use Zoom. But, you know, the whole notion of having a team that is not in one location that is very distributed was foundational to the exascale computing project. And it's a big part of how we conduct our work every day. Another project that I think you are a leader for is called Ideas. Is that yeah. related to Exascale or is it a different project? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Yeah. Um, yes, Ideas started before the Exascale computing project, right in 2013, 2014 timeframe. So the Ideas project started and it continues to be this focus on developer productivity and software sustainability. How do we make, a, you know, help people become more productive as developers? How can we take the products that we're creating and make them more sustainable? And, and it existed before the Exascale project, but then was also folded in to the Exascale project. And it's evolved to be this kind of R&D wing of what we're doing, of, of the enterprise that, you know, for high-performance computing at the Department of Energy. And this team is focused on working with teams that are developing software. The ideas team engages with them and helps them identify opportunities to improve how they do their work, either again, to be more productive or to make something that's more sustainable. We want to expand this as we go forward. In fact, there's a workshop coming up in December to focus on the kind of the science of research software. I call this uh, research software science, trying to build off of the concept of research software engineering, expand on that nice base that we're getting now with RSE being a well-understood acronym. And by that, I mean, what we're trying to do with the Ideas Project is certainly RSE-related work. We're trying to understand you know, how can we be better at the craft of research software. But we also want to expand it to start including the scientific aspect, meaning we want to apply the scientific method to understand better how people develop and use software to do their research. I absolutely love that. I've, I've also been interested in sort of the, the meta level of developer productivity and even things like happiness. So yes. for all of these projects and especially ideas and this conference that you mentioned coming up, if I'm listening to the podcast right now and if I'm a researcher or an RC at a different institution and I'm really interested in what you're saying, how do I get involved? That's a great question. There are a few things I can think of. One is we do a regular monthly webinar, HPC Best Practices. And, and all of this you can find by going to the ideas-productivity.org website. 
So that website is the main portal to the ideas project related activities. You can also, there's a companion portal called BSSW. It stands for Better Scientific Software.io. And that is a portal where people can contribute their content. If you want to write an article, you can provide that to us. There's a way to contribute articles to bssw.io. And of course, there's information there for you. If you are interested in better scientific software, we curate and collect lots of different kinds of content. Uh, Some of it is original articles. Others are curated articles. You know, someone will have read a good article somewhere in the broader online literature for software more broadly and say, hey, you know, this is an article. I think it's relevant to scientific software, you know, and they write a brief paragraph about it and provide it to the BSSW site. So those are a few ways to get involved. BSSW also sponsors a fellowship program annually And we have a a lightweight application process for BSSW fellows. And so people can apply for a fellowship. And the fellowship is a a modest amount of money, roughly $25,000 after all the overheads are taken away. For you as a fellow to reach out to the broader community with an idea you have, maybe promoting diversity. Uh, If you go to the bssw.io website, you'll see we've had uh, fellows classes and honorable mentions since uh, 2018, as, as I think you know, Vanessa. And so, so th- those are a few ways. We also have just this year's version just finished, but we have the Collegeville workshop series on scientific software, which engages quite a few RSE community members to talk about and share, learn from each other ways to do scientific software better. We've had it three years now. The first year was focused on sustainability, the second on productivity. And this past year was on software teams, you know, trying to understand how teams behave. And, and we're you know, kind of starting to look at what the theme will be for next summer. It'll be in uh, July and you know, last part of July in 2022. Yeah, and all of these initiatives, they're totally fantastic because they provide opportunity for RCs to come together, to have an idea and to pursue it and to make it happen. I wanted to ask you, so Collegeville or just more generally, a lot of these initiatives that you run are remote and you've actually been a remote person long before the pandemic started. So you probably have a little bit of, I don't know if I'd call it expertise, but What are the things that you've learned in terms of best practices for being remote? And what would you tell someone that may be struggling with not going into an office right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I have been working remotely. In fact, I even before joining Sandia, I worked for my last year at Cray as a remote employee. I I live in rural central Minnesota. My family and I have 20 acres on a little lake in the middle of nowhere. And I've been doing this, working this way since summer of 1997. So a very long time ago, got started. So in a pandemic, some things are just plain old hard, I think. One of them is how can you just chat with somebody and share what you've been doing and they can share with you what they've been doing. I think it's really hard. I'm in a privileged position in that, you know, as a director and and a lot of people who as a part of their job have to report up to me, 
I don't feel a sense of disconnectedness just because there's a natural structure for people to communicate with me. If you're an individual contributor, I think it's a lot harder right now. And I hope we get out of this pandemic soon enough so that we can start to travel a bit more or at least infrequently get together with some of our other remote or people with whom we work who are geographically remote. But let's assume we can do that. Then I think one of the key things for me that's allowed me to be successful in, in this remote situation is I travel and I make a point of visiting with people, even people I'm not working with at the moment. And I, in a sense, make the rounds. Right. I go and I talk to just anybody I can find who might be doing something interesting. And, and what I found by doing that is that I was often better connected than some of my people who were on site simply because you know, they could go visit with their colleagues who, with whom they weren't necessarily working directly on a project at the moment. They could do that anytime. And, and so weeks or months could go by before they actually did it because it could happen anytime. Whereas in my situation, because I was going to be you know, on site for a few days, I had to make a point of doing it. So I, I did it. It was an overt, regular thing I did. And, and I think that's one of the really important things to do if you're going to be a remote person, if that's available to you. Somehow kind of create that opportunistic environment where you can just get to know somebody and learn about what they're doing, even if it's not immediately applicable to the task at hand. That's a really good point. I don't travel a lot. And obviously I'm not traveling because of COVID, but I find that I need to engage with my colleagues, just even if it's just sort of asking a question in Slack when I maybe wouldn't have before, just to kind of engage and and see what they think. And even sometimes just to be like, hey, I'm here. I care that you're still there. And sometimes I suspect that some of my colleagues, uh, whether they're at my institution or not, maybe kind of like feeling a little bit lonely. And I just kind of want to check in and say hello. So It definitely has been a different mindset. I've found that COVID has almost been a blessing in that sense because I'm more aware of my interactions and I'm more conscious about interacting with people. And I maybe wouldn't have thought about that before. I think you can do this. So Slack can be, if you give yourself permission as as say a group of people, you know, a department or some organizational entity, if you give yourself permission to use Slack as a way of kind of knocking on someone's door, Right. Imagine you were in person and walking down the hall and so you see somebody's in their room and you just knock on the door and say hi. I've used Slack like that from time to time. If someone sent me an email, for example, and I say, you know, I really just want to talk with that person. I'll get on Slack. I'll tap the call button and just hope that they're there. And yeah, we talk about that one thing that the email was about, but we also end up talking about uh, several other things that were unrelated and, and kind of build that kind of depth of connection with each other that we can carry forward as a relationship. So if you could tell our listeners one thing to practice or try in their daily routines that you found highly effective, such as the thing you just mentioned, what would it be? Wow, one thing. I'll mention just a couple. One is I have found it, one of them is remote and, and one of them is more general. Um, what the remote thing is I found it very important to have a space where I live, you know, where I work that is dedicated to my work. 
I think it's really hard. It was hard for me and it's hard for others, I think, to, you know, simply live and work in the same exact space. So that's one thing, that's one bit of advice I would have in terms of remote stuff, even if it's just a different corner of the same room that can be helpful. The other is that I would say is more general is these kinds of not specific conversations. It's not just about the task at hand, but reaching out to somebody by whatever means you have and trying to understand what they're doing, understand you know what their challenges are. Again, even if it's not related specifically to what has to get done for this week, you know, creating that kind of Slack space, to use Slack in a different way, where you can give yourself the permission to learn about something that's not about today's job. That's good advice. And I'm laughing a little bit because I'm in my 600 something square foot apartment and my desk is like literally right next to my bed. I would have more trouble separating out work and life if yeah. I could literally like roll out of bed and be at my computer and be on my computer and be like, oh, I'll just fall over and, and take a 20 minute nap. Yes, no, I hear you. Yeah, and it's not, these things can't necessarily be actionable, but I do know someone who, you know, who literally it had a one room apartment and there was one corner for work and there was one corner for, you know, relaxation, one corner for sleeping and the kitchen was the other corner and it helped to some extent. It's not a perfect answer, but it helped to some extent. Yeah, I agree. I think awareness is great. There, there reaches a time where I say, okay, you know, it's dinner time. Not going to look at that computer, even though it's yes. three feet from me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we're coming up on time. I have yeah. three more questions. Sure. What do you love about Minnesota and would you encourage others to visit? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I love the lakes and the trees. My wife and I have kids and it's a great place to raise a family. I like the variety of seasons, although the winter can be a bit too long and cold for my personal taste, but that kind of variety is very nice. I really enjoy it. If you're not a cold weather person, come at times like now. It'll be a reasonable place to be. If you like winter, hey, come and join us. It's a, We get real snow every year. Yeah, I definitely think I would love to visit Minnesota someday. I am an extremely snow person. I don't like mild weather. I don't like hot weather. If I could be in a snowy land year-round, I would totally choose that. All right, so very good. I've, I've never been to Minnesota, um, but I, I hope to visit someday. Yeah. <laughs> so what would you tell an aspiring scientist, either about how to think about their career or maybe about a national lab? I think I give the advice that my first supervisor gave to me at Cray is to work on problems that are important and interesting to you and, and have a broad interest, you know, be willing to look at problems that maybe weren't related to your thesis. For some people, they just love, you know, to solve problems that are specific to their field. But for me, my part of my enjoyment has always been that I can work across a broad set of problems. I can also work on something that other people think is really important. And so if I make progress on it, other people will care about it. Okay, final question. And this one's a little bit harder. So if you had to go back and do your whole life over again, but you couldn't follow the same path, what would you do? Oh, wow. That's interesting. I don't know. You know there are days right now because of you know what I do for my job, it's so much about people. 
right? So much about, you know, how understanding where people are coming from, you know, learning how to communicate better with people I work with, learning what the needs are and how to respond to those needs so we can become better at what we're doing. And so, you know, if I weren't able to have this career that I'm doing right now, what I'd want to be is I'd want to be the cognitive or social scientist who would be able to use science and scientific approaches to understand how teams and how people behave so that we could get deeper insight into scientific software teams. Oh, that sounds cool. So maybe like organizational psychology? Yes, that would be one example, right? I find those the topics in this area fascinating to me as a scientist, as a person who's you know, trying to lead teams of people, the science that has been built up, the scientific knowledge base for organizational psychology, for cognitive sciences is really intriguing to me. And I wish I knew more about it. Awesome. Well, Mike, it has been such a pleasure to have you on RSC Stories. I really enjoyed learning about your work and what you're passionate about. And I'm excited to see how all the projects that you're working on will have a really positive impact on our community. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Privilege being on your show.